This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. I talk with Minister of Seniors Deb Schultz about the government's new safe long-term care fund. Does it actually have the means to keep residents safe during the second wave? And if pandemic stress is making your pain or your arthritis worse, medical cannabis may help. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Now that a COVID vaccine was approved for use in Britain, there's word that three former American presidents are volunteering to get COVID vaccines on camera to promote public confidence and prove it's safe. Barack Obama, George W. Bush and Bill Clinton hope it will send a powerful message as American public health officials try to convince the public to take the vaccine. Obama now plans to use his post-presidency for a public awareness campaign after acknowledging the very real problem of vaccine hesitancy. Many of us would like to forget this pandemic year, but not historians. Archives and museums are collecting data so there's a formal record for future generations in case there's another pandemic. Library and Archives Canada has already collected material that's equivalent to a person streaming over 2,000 movies online to document the physical and emotional impacts of this COVID year. More than 2 million vulnerable people, including long-term care residents in England, will be offered free vitamin D supplements this winter. The government will deliver for free a four-month supply to get people through the dark days of winter. Limited daylight hours and wearing of layers make it difficult to take in enough sunlight during the winter, making vitamin D important when people are having to stay indoors even more due to COVID. The vitamin is linked to boosting bone and muscle health. Vitamin D deficiencies have also been linked to severe cases of COVID-19. No matter how your heart is grieving, if you keep on believing the dream that you wish. That's 74-year-old Cher singing to the elephant she spent years trying to free. Since 2016, the singer has been part of the effort to relocate Kavan, Pakistan's only Asian elephant who lived in a controversial zoo for years. When the elephant's partner died in 2012, he was dubbed the world's loneliest elephant. Earlier this year, the zoo was closed due to poor conditions and Kavan was transferred to a Cambodian wildlife sanctuary where he'll live alongside three other elephants. 
Betsy Wade, the first woman to edit news at the New York Times, has died at the age of 91. She was a trailblazer for women's equality for her role in a landmark 1974 class action suit against the Times. It was one of the industry's earliest fights over women's rights to equal treatment in hiring, promotion, pay, and workplace protection. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. This week, the Trudeau government announced a $1.5 billion safe long-term care fund. Advocates worry that there aren't enough strings attached to the money to ensure that the provinces will do the right things to protect vulnerable residents now. I talked with Minister of Seniors Deb Schult. Deb Schult, Minister of Seniors, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much, Libby. It's really nice to be back with you. So your government launched the $1.5 billion Safe Long-Term Care Fund, which everyone says is a good start. But advocates are concerned that there aren't enough strings attached to that money, and they worry that the provinces will just be able to wiggle out of making the necessary changes in a timely way. Well, Libby, the money is is earmarked for particular types of improvements and improvements that we know uh, are, are challenges right now. And that is infection prevention and control ventilation improvements. We know improving ventilation is going to be helpful. So those are ventilation improvements that need to be done. And hiring additional staff and topping up wages. We know retaining staff uh, personal support workers has been a really big challenge. We provided money in the summer, $740 million went to the provinces and territories to be able to help them deal with the challenges they're having in long-term care. But clearly more money is required to be uh, provided to support. It is their jurisdiction. They are responsible, but we are there to help them. And this is what we're trying to do. Everybody knows what has to be done. The thing is getting it done and getting it done in a timely way. So, for instance, here in Ontario, there have been a number of commissions that said, well, you have to raise wages, pay people a living wage and give four hours of care. And they acknowledge that. But but five years out, people are dying now. So, so Libby, this is a tragedy that we are all seized with. Obviously, what we have seen happen in long-term care is unacceptable, which is why you saw in our uh, throne speech that we would be uh, working with the provinces and territories to bring in national long-term care standards. People are wondering what would be so difficult about turning these things into a national standard, saying, okay, uh, you have to beef up your staff by such and such a date or you don't get the money. Why is it so difficult when really everyone knows what has to be done? So I, you're absolutely right that it's uh, stakeholders across the country, uh, you know, those that have been working in the sector have been giving advice to government for some time. Uh, and the provinces and territories have that responsibility. And we have seen that many provinces have stepped up. And not all provinces are operating long-term care in the same way. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. This is why it does take uh, some time to work with the provinces and territories to work out what should be done in each of the different provinces to make sure that they're beefing up and and supporting better long-term care. Right now, Libby, what's important is to save lives today. So this is why it's important that we don't don't focus our efforts on, on 
battling with the provinces and territories. We focus our efforts in providing what they need to help keep those seniors safe right now. Do you have a timeline for a national standard? So uh, the conversations have already begun. And I think you heard, there, you may be aware, there was an announcement this morning that there is a, um, there's going to be some uh, teams uh, that have been struck to be able to study this and to give good advice. So we do already have recommendations across the country from stakeholders, but these are experts. As I said, this issue has been studied to death, and I guess there's a lot of frustration. I'd like to read you some comments that CARP got that they forwarded to me. I am appalled at the lack of accountability. All talk and no action. This needs fixing now not in four or five years. How many more seniors have to pay the price for inaction? What what do you say to those people? What I say is that uh, there has been a tremendous amount of work that has been undertaken by all levels of government. Uh, Just to re-emphasize what the federal government has been doing is we have provided the $740 million in the summer uh, to be able to support the provinces and territories to take action. We also supported the Red Cross to be able to train more personal support workers because we know that there was a, a real shortage of workers and they've been taking that work and doing that work and providing more personal support workers to the system. We've also just announced an additional $38 million to support training up to 4,000 personal support worker interns that will rapidly train, get up to speed and get them accelerated into placements as quickly as possible. So there is a lot of action going on uh, right now, certainly at the federal level and I know also at the provincial levels. It seems that there's never a discussion about this without either blaming a previous government or a different level of government. And, and to, to somebody who has a loved one in a precarious situation in a home, it, it just sounds like government gobbledygook. So Libby, I think you know from our past, past discussions that I had my mother-in-law in a long-term care facility and I have my father-in-law in a senior's residence. So I'm very mindful of the impact that this is having on their lives and on Canadians uh, with their loved ones in these facilities. We are stepping up with significant investments in funding to the provinces and territories. We're not pointing fingers. What we're doing is we're saying it is their jurisdiction. They are doing, they are responsible for delivering the service, but we are there with them. And we moved in when we had to, uh, when we were asked to with the military in the early days and with the Red Cross. So where we've been able to support with services and, and money and PPE, that's what that's what we're doing. And so we're there. We're there to support with not just money, but with resources. That was Minister of Seniors Deb Schult. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, some exciting new uses for medical cannabis. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. The stress of the pandemic is making things worse for many people suffering from conditions like chronic pain, 
arthritis, and fibromyalgia. Medical cannabis may be the answer. I reached Dr. Arash Tagvai of Apollo Cannabis Clinic's Manager of Clinical Affairs. I would imagine that the stress of the pandemic has made some of the conditions that people use medical cannabis for worse, uh, namely chronic pain and arthritis. Uh, Have you had a big increase in demand? Yes, absolutely. You know, there are certain things that can exacerbate any condition and stasis, staying still or sitting still for long periods of time or having less access to movement is definitely one of them. So we have had people tell us that their conditions have worsened through the pandemic. We have had people call us and say, well, you know, I've had to increase my dose of set medication or or medical cannabis to help with what's going on. So it's definitely going, it's definitely going that way. It's trending that direction, Libby. What are the top three conditions uh, that people come to your clinic for? Right off the bat, I would say osteoarthritis, right? We all eventually lose the battle with gravity, right? We get bad joints. There's knees and hips and, and, and back pain that can arise through just use, average wear and tear. So we deal with that a lot in clinic. Sleep is a very important one for us. Most people who suffer from chronic pain will eventually suffer from chronic fatigue. If you can't go to sleep, well, then the next day you're in more pain. And if we can help break that cycle, again, we, we found a tremendous level of success with sleep assistance. And the third one, I'd probably say, um, you know, more specifically, headaches or fibromyalgia. There are conditions that can lead into a chronic status, and medical cannabis can really help those patients out. We've learned by now that CBD is the active ingredient but does not make you high, and there's THC that does. So uh, what is the balance between these two components of cannabis? We understand that the main difference between CBD and THC is just more so affinity, like how it connects to our bodies. CBD is not connected to the feelings of euphoria. It does not have a psychoactive effect to it. So that is where most patients will begin their treatment. So if we start with CBD and we can address their condition, then great. If THC is involved in a patient's treatment, it'll always be at a very small dose. We like to say in clinic that THC is, is you know, the, the recreational component. If we use very high, we come in at a microdose. And again, we can benefit from it medically before feeling any of the side effects that people are afraid of. You don't have to smoke it. Absolutely not. No, (laughs) we don't recommend anybody smoke anything. So the highest rate of success with the use of medical cannabis is using it systemically, ingesting it. Uh, We talk about oils that we can very precisely control the dose of CBD with. And then we talk about capsules that are a set exact dose that's approved by Health Canada as well. So again, it's a very precise medication when it comes to the use with us. And how important is it to have the right strain? I gather there there are a lot of different strains. There are. I would equate that to, um, you know, several different medications in the same family. So there are lots of different medications that a patient could take for pain, and there are lots of different strains of medical cannabis. Again, this is something that the physicians would consult with their patients and ensure that they understand. This is where we will begin. It may not be where we end. So here is the strain that I think we should start on. I'll see you in two weeks and we'll make sure that this is working or we can discuss what hasn't worked. And that's the way we treat it. And it's like any other medication. Are you working virtually now or or by phone? How are you operating? Yes, both. Um, Just in accordance to the federal guidelines for the pandemic, we do have phone appointments with all of our healthcare professionals available. 
We also do offer virtual appointments. If somebody would like to put eyes on their doctor or nurse practitioner, it doesn't matter. We will accommodate to what's best for the patient. What we have discovered is that patients thoroughly adore the phone appointments. It becomes easier for everybody. One of the advantages of medical cannabis, I'm told, is that it allows people to get off addictive painkillers. What can you tell me about that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there's been uh, publications on the opioid-reducing properties of cannabis. So we're very happy to help patients in that, in that realm, in that arena of reducing more harmful medications. In fact, that's the goal for most patient cases at Apollo, is to reduce other medications that can be or are far more harmful to that patient. It's not just opioids. Um, there's some sleep medications that we are able to substitute for. Also, even your, your entry level, but your NSAIDs, your uh, Celebrex, right? All these things that patients are taking from, from the physician, who, again, I don't want to throw shadow at any physician that is doing that. It's what their procedures are, is to deal with the patient's pain. Now that we have better options, we can try to reduce those medications or actually get rid of altogether those medications and, and replace them with, with CBD and THC if necessary. Are there any medications that people are using that uh, might be contraindicated for medical cannabis? There are a few anticoagulants that are potentially, on theory, in, on paper, contraindicated. And so our physicians do their due diligence. Right? It's very easy for a medical professional to understand the reason why a patient is using a medication, discuss with the patient another medication that could take its place so we can you know, move forward with the treatment of medical cannabis. Now, having said that, there are a lot of people that are accessing cannabis outside of a doctor's office without the supervision of a healthcare professional. And that does leave them you know, slightly vulnerable to these medical interactions. So you know, it's, it's very important to have a healthcare professional's supervision when introducing this treatment into your regime. What are some of the other conditions that people may be able to find relief with medical cannabis? Recently, we've had uh, a lot of patients with multiple sclerosis. Osteoarthritis, again, super popular, but less popular and becoming more popular now. It's gaining some traction is rheumatoid arthritis, which is a separate autoimmune form of arthritis, not just wear and tear. And, you know, those are, those are some of the ones that have come our way that are a little more rare. And fibromyalgia, I also mentioned that earlier, but that's a, it's a very, very tricky condition that a lot of physicians don't have many treatment options for. And medical cannabis has been helping this demographic significantly. Dr. Arash Tagvai, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Libby. That was Dr. Arash Tagvai of Apollo Cannabis Clinics. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.